Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. If you just joined us in this show, welcome. I have a gift for you. I wrote this ebook on how to increase your sexual desire. This is specifically targeted for women. And the reason I wrote this book is this is a challenge I see a lot in my practice, that women are coming in, feeling they're broken, there's something wrong with them. Meanwhile, they can totally do these small, actionable things that long-term will help them to have a better relationship with their sexuality and cultivate a, a more healthier sexual desire. So if you are interested to increase your sexual desire, definitely download the book on the show notes. It's absolutely free. It's my gift to you because it just breaks my heart that this is an issue that many people are struggling with and there are things you can do about it. Today, we're going to talk about a very interesting topic. My guest is Dr. Eileen Crehan. She's a psychologist and a researcher, and her work is around exploration of sexuality with individuals who are on autism spectrum disorders. And if you're a clinician, you know that this is a newer diagnosis in a sense that now based on DSM-5, that entails Asperger's, Asperger's as well. So Many times people are in the relationship with someone that they're suspecting that they're perhaps higher functioning people on the spectrum. And at times the sex education we have, some of the topics we talk about might not be directly applicable to people because there are different approaches that one might take in order to support this individual. We're going to talk about, is it possible for people to have sexy, healthy sex life when they are on a spectrum? We're going to talk about impact of this diagnosis and pursue of sexual relationship. And also we're going to address how can a parent of a child with this condition can talk to the child about sex and sexuality. So certainly stay tuned. As I mentioned, our guest is Dr. Creon. She's a clinical psychologist and specialist in autism spectrum disorder. In particular, she focuses on adolescents and adults with autism spectrum disorder and promoting healthy development in the domains of sexuality, physical health, and social abilities. Dr. Creon's lab at Tuft University integrates the perspective and insights of autistic individuals through an advisory board and by supervising autistic adults about their priorities for research on autism across the lifespan. Currently, she is focused on exploring best structures for sexuality education programming, adapting teaching materials to the learning needs of the autistic individuals with a range of intellectual and language abilities, and disseminating sexuality education curricula using telehealth system. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Crehan. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Eileen Crean on our show today. Eileen, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. 
I am so excited to have you on. As I was sharing with you a few minutes ago, I wanted to have someone on the show to talk to us and educate us about challenges of people on autism spectrum disorder when it comes to sexuality, because I feel it's an area that hasn't been addressed properly. So I'm so excited to have an expert in this area on the show. Before I go kind of like focus on the sexuality piece, for some of our listeners that they're not familiar with people on autism spectrum disorder, which is a neurodiagnosis, it used to be ASD, like a Asperger and autism disorder. So tell us what are some of the characteristics of these individuals? Sure. So, I mean, it certainly changed a lot over history, but we have a much better understanding of it now. Um, and so it's really this combination of difficulties or differences with social communication. So that can be communicating verbally, non-verbally, reading social cues and social reciprocity. So back and forth conversation and then restricted interest in repetitive behaviors. So these are really motivating um, and enticing either objects that people can be interested in. There are sensory experiences people can have and then repetitive behaviors can sometimes be physical movements. And I'm glad you talked about it. And one thing that I noticed that people oftentimes they know, quote unquote, when someone is low functioning, when they have issues with being verbal or there are some major developmental issues that people often kind of get diagnosed early on. But what's interesting, at least in the couples that I see in my practice, that sometimes there are people that are on a higher function in part of the spectrum. And I know my colleagues who are working with this population would hate it when I call low functioning and high functioning. Yeah, yeah. But for the lack of better word, people might not be, might function well, they are in a relationship, but they might still be in the spectrum. And I feel those are the population that at times have tons of struggles because their partner are not aware of their issues and what's going on. Have you had experience with those individuals? Yeah, so I think sometimes what can be really interesting about autism is that the the presentation that you can see, like in the you know clinical space or um, with people who are partnered, is that cognitive strengths can, are very strong, right? Language ability can be sort of you wouldn't notice that someone had autism from the way they speak. And so that when people sometimes are surprised to hear that I work with patients and clients who um, are in romantic relationships and that um, just because sort of the idea that expressing and talking about emotions is more challenging for people on the spectrum does not mean that they are not experiencing those emotions and want to share in those emotions. Uh, And we know from actually asking self-advocates themselves that wanting to be in a romantic relationship is just about as common as in the neurotypical population. Mm -hmm. So these old myths about either being asexual or sexual predators are not quite as pervasive as we thought for a really long time. So we're sort of overcoming those, those myths at this point. And one of the biggest challenges that at least I see in the clients who are like have high ability, cognitive abilities, and they want to connect with someone sexually and emotionally is the could be communication piece, but also social cue piece. So tell us what are some of the ways that you see this diagnosis might, might get in the way of someone finding a sexual partner that they might desire? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things. I think one thing we know from research is that sometimes interest in romantic relationships doesn't develop until a little bit later in life. Um, And not later in life, but later than neurotypical peers, so maybe in your 20s. Uh, And so that means you've missed out on a couple of years of practice, right? The more 
you sort of date and seek out partners, the more you learn about yourself and what your goals are. And then sometimes connecting with people socially. So if there are particular interests that people are really focused on that they don't share with some of their peers, or if they're really anxious about meeting people, anxiety and autism overlap a lot. That can be certainly a challenge to overcome. And then sometimes just the knowledge about how to approach that, right? So asking someone on a date or figuring out if they like you, there's a whole bunch of steps that lead up to that, right? Reading the um, responses of those people, um, emotionally and nonverbal cues, are they responsive to you? Uh, So that's a lot of social information to assess. And if you're someone on the spectrum who struggles with that, that could be your sort of first difficulty. And then some other things like it's, you know, what are your goals in being in a sexual or romantic and intimate relationship? You know, are you still sort of thinking about your identity orientation? So you're not even sure like who you might want to have a relationship with. Sometimes we see sensory interests and sensitivities coming up here because, you know, there's a lot of sensory parts to um, sexual experiences in particular. And so how do you sort of proactively plan for that? So there's a lot to consider. Well, I love that you talked about different areas. And I think one one particular area that I have experienced in my clients are uh, one day there's a sensory issue and I have some clients that they are, again, like they have wonderful jobs, they, they are doing well in the society and they're older and then they're still a virgin and they, yeah. they tell me the biggest part is the sensory component of things and how of certain feelings certain sounds they experience that being intrusive is that something that people can work on yeah for sure and I think there's a couple of ways you can approach it so one is you know if it's a goal of someone on the spectrum where they're like okay I want to have sexual intercourse let's say and then uh, talking about, okay, what might be the related sensory experiences? And sometimes that can feel funny, even to people who work in mental health, because we're not used to saying, okay, let's think about sex. And words to explain sex might be like wet, sticky, pressure, right? And so to say those things out loud, um, I was actually just doing a training last night with some college students on campus. And that's always a funny, I get some giggles as I start that out. But, um, but you know, those are, that's part of it. If you have a kid who's never liked when um, their hands are sticky or wet, which Mm -hmm. is super common in autism, we can say, okay, as you're headed towards sexual activity, this is going to be a sensation that comes up. So either we can find some ways around it, Or we can practice comfortable ways to have a conversation with your partner about here are things I like and I don't like when it's not in the heat of the moment and causing sort of upset or sort of just to stop the interaction altogether. And I love that you're saying it kind of like breaking it down and think about what might come up so you can Mm -hmm. help as a clinician, your client to kind of anticipate it so they can problem solve ahead of time. I think that's a fantastic strategy. Yeah, yeah. makes things a lot easier. (laughs) Yeah. And the other piece of it is at least my experience is it sexuality is there are so many implicit component to it that for example mm-hmm. when to initiate when when to know like to escalate things obviously verbal consent are very important but i think there are some subtle things that are happening that the individual needs to know or read to be able to kind of move toward a sexual kind of intimacy, intercourse, a foreplay. And I see that and I can even imagine with many people that's an issue if they are on the spectrum. So yeah. what can they do to improve that? Yeah, so I think part of what always strikes me as really interesting in this space is that, especially when you've got couples where there's one who's autistic and one who is neurotypical, that the goal of increasing communication is so helpful. So we expect so many people, especially in like intimate relationships, to sort of read our minds, right? Mm-hmm. Things that I like, things that I don't like. Um, so getting those to be expressed out loud oftentimes can sort of solve the issue before it's much of an issue um, or even sort of backtrack and save it. So, you know, if there are things that you like or don't like from either partner or things that you expect, like if, if getting 
flowers once a month is what takes what it takes for you to feel like, okay, I'm loved and appreciated, then sort of expressing that, right? Instead mm-hmm. of being like, oh, I hope they send me flowers. Um, and so I feel like a lot of times when I do sort of trainings about sexuality education within the scope of developmental disabilities, a lot of the, my neurotypical participants are like, oh my gosh, I should just do that, right? Like I should just <laughs> say what I want or I need. It's like, yes, this is actually, you know, the like a universal design approach, like things that we're using for autism actually mm. would be great for everybody to do. Right. Okay. So not expecting your partner to be a mind reader. Yes, <laughs> <It's> exactly. <laughs> How many words would we have avoided in that situation? Right. right absolutely. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting. I mean, Many, many moons ago, I was working with this mother. She was stressed out because she had children on spectrum who were kind of like doing well, but there was some like she was trying to navigate things. And as she was going to training for for her children, she realized that perhaps maybe my husband is also struggling. And it was a kind of aha moment. And she learned to verbalize her needs and desires. And that was a game changer. And I agree with you that whether your partner is on the spectrum or not, it's helpful to be kind of proactive about what you want. Yeah. And I think something, I mean, obviously when we're doing couples counseling, oftentimes it's with partners who are very verbal, usually, you know, average to above average IQ, um, who are able to sort of engage in the therapeutic process, but also the attention that needs to be given for folks who are autistic, but who are actually who are nonverbal, right? So something that I run into sometimes, especially because, you know, there's, I guess, two reasons. One, the rate of sexual abuse and autism is high, and that the, you know, people develop physically, whether or not they have a developmental delay, right? So you're, you know, you go through puberty, whether or not you have autism or Down syndrome or anything like that. And so that sometimes, if you've got someone who is nonverbal and they have sexual needs that sort of need to be expressed sort of in, as recognition of themselves as an autonomous human, like there won't be any sexually related terms on their talker if they use a communication mm-hmm. device, which is a problem for expressing needs and wants as you're a teenager and an adult and sexual behavior is normal. But also you can't tell anyone if inappropriate things are happening, mm-hmm. right? And so communication across all sort of angles of types of communication, I think is important in autism as well. Absolutely. And I think one of the myths that you mentioned that people have when it comes to this population, that sexuality is not in their mind or they're not a sexual being or they're asexual. So tell us what are some other myths that you notice when it comes to working with this population or like having a child who struggles with it? Yeah. So I think, um, and this is true inside or outside of autism, but as kids enter, uh, start puberty, this idea that they're sort of eternal children, right? Like you're still really young. And especially if you've got a kiddo where their chronological or physical age doesn't match their developmental age. So maybe physically they're 14 or 15, but their interests are more aligned with the five or six-year-old. It can be hard to be like, we need to explain some parts of puberty and sex to your child because that is what their body is going through and sort of relying on what is healthy sexual development and what are, you know, helpful ways to talk about certain developmental stages and activities that also match what you need to help people take care of their own bodies. I think another thing that is sort of interesting is that from some really great research studies in the Netherlands and in Australia, we know that rates, I guess in sexual orientation, like non-heterosexual identities, so bisexual, homosexual, are higher in autism, and that gender identities also seems to be more fluid in autism, um, especially, and the sexual orientation is especially more... Um, food for women who are on the spectrum. and But those are topics that we don't talk about really at all in sex education programs. So if you think about 
autistic teenagers who are accessing sex ed, you know, let's say through school, for example, if they're less likely to have access to those types of programs, and then they're less likely to be talking about relationships that might be relevant to them. I think that's another place where we're missing the mark with our preconceived notions about autism. Well, it seems like it's a multi-layer issue that a people at times are imagining this population, they don't have sexual needs and desire, or they're not interested. And then on top of that, they kind of want to, even if the schools are providing that education, it's more heteronormative or targeted for a specific population. So it seems like if we tailor our education to be more inclusive, it will be a better sex education. And also it will be easier for this population to get the information they would need. One of the things that comes up often in my practice are parents who want to talk with their children about sex. And even if you are neurodevelopmentally in the same kind of same with your child still, it's such a challenging conversation to have. (laughs) So I can only imagine that if you have a child that are on spectrum, it will be significantly harder because you wouldn't perhaps know what to say and how to modify the information. What are some of the recommendations you have for the parents that they want to equip their children with sex education, but they're not sure how to do it. Yeah, I think balancing talking about terms like sort of proper anatomical terms for body parts and behaviors is helpful, as well as ones they might hear with their peers, because that might be confusing if those don't line up correctly. And then talking about which words we can use where. And then I think also when you see sexualized material in the media, talking about it in the then and there is really important. You know, we see a lot of sexualization of like really young children um, and why that might not be appropriate. So to catch it in the moment for any sort of confusion might arise. So I think having open conversations about that, giving them good places to find information as they need it, sort of depending on their reading level or how easily they're able to you know, navigate the internet or books that you might have at home. And then a good discussion about boundaries. And I always say, I think that's something, um, especially in Europe, they do a really good job of starting from when kids are little, right? So if you don't want a hug from someone when you're little, starting to teach you about like, how do you say no to that? And then what are other people's boundaries and how do they tell you about those boundaries and how do we respect that? And that those are really those early lessons about boundaries end up developing into conversations about consent when you're older. And so if you haven't talked about those when you're younger, here are people we touch and don't touch and how we touch them. It's hard then when you're 14, 15, 16 to be like, and now consent, right? That's a lot more (laughs) complex and you've had no sort of lead in whether or not you have autism. That's just a tough transition. Right. And I always tell parents, they're kind of scared if I bring up the topic of sex with my child, then they're going to go and have sex. But often that's my experience. That's kind of opposite. That when you inform kids about like healthy sexual behaviors and things you can do, that it can give them pause when it comes to the risky and healthy situation, or at least that's the hope that we have. And I agree with you that the younger they are, the better it is. And you don't need to talk about elaborate intercourse when there are two or three to be able to give them age-appropriate information and open up these conversations. And boundaries are so important for everyone for every child to know what's okay and what's not okay. And it seems like when it comes to this population, it's even perhaps more important because you're sharing with me that many of them get victimized because of their differences. 
Yeah. And I think that is something that the more like we focus on earlier, like, like I mentioned, can be really helpful because what we end up with, I mean, I really like to focus on the proactive, like sort of optimistic side of this stuff. So how can we put good sex education in place when they're younger? And how can we have these discussions early on? But the, the reason we do this is to avoid some negative outcomes, right? So for folks who are pretty verbal and maybe have good social connections and things like that, but aren't able to access those romantic relationships, that can result in a lot of internalizing symptoms. So depression and anxiety, because they want to be in those relationships and feel like they can't. And then on the other side, oftentimes, if you've got kids who either are not sure how to express sexuality or not sure how to do it appropriately, but they know there's something that should be secretive about it. These are situations where oftentimes as psychologists all get called in because the kid is, you know, masturbating in the classroom at school, right? And that's going to get you into trouble or legal situations. Whereas if you could say ahead of time, okay, this is sort of a normal part of being a teenager and here are spots where it is appropriate and here are spots where it is inappropriate to do that is, of course, a very awkward conversation to have, but it would be better to do it beforehand before you sort of have to deal with the consequences of that in a public space. So if we have listeners that they are kind of have this awareness, they are ended a spectrum they want to have fulfilling sexual lives which is at least that's my hope with this podcast that everyone deserves to have a fulfilling sexual life and they don't know what to do what are some of the recommendations that you have for the adults Yeah, so I would say starting off with thinking a little bit about your goals for a relationship. I think whether you have autism or not, right? Um, (laughs) What sorts of things you're interested in, what sorts of people you're attracted to, and where are places you could go to meet these people, and how could you sort of talk about things that you're interested in? So if you're interested in sexual intercourse and not much else, if you're interested in an intimate relationship but not much sexual activity, and so you're deciding those things ahead of time before hormones kick in. I think oftentimes for autistic adults, they're like, okay, starting that conversation is really hard. And so either finding some social skills supports, either through groups or a therapist. I've had a mix of responses to online dating with clients that I've worked with, like it because the initial interaction, there's a little bit less of a social demand. In some, it's not as helpful because there's, you know, you don't actually know who you're talking to and things like that. And then there are some resources where people can get specific hints, like how do you ask someone out on a date where it's almost like a manualized approach um, to going through this decision tree. And there's a couple of websites that have some additional resources for that as well. So people could explore those. Well, I'm hearing from what you're telling me that it's it's possible for people who are on the spectrum to have great sex life. They just need to find a hack that works for them. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and I think the big part of it also is, as you mentioned, that kind of going to the places, kind of thinking about where can you be comfortable, A, and B, what I tell all my clients that if you want to find a partner, do something that you feel you're good at kind of like somewhere that you can shine your personality, whatever kind of interest that you have. And I know with the clients that I work with, they have like tremendous strength in some areas. And that can be very attractive if they are kind of like finding a a place that they can practice that and kind of use that as a way to kind of attract partners. I think online dating, you're right, that can be tricky. Is there any specific online dating sites for people who are on the spectrum? You know, a couple have popped up over the years, and I I don't know the pros and cons of each one. There is a bit of a danger with that for some risk of abuse. Um, It's hard to verify if someone has autism. Some spaces, like I know there's 
website that like meetup will have like a local like Asperger's group oftentimes. And so that can be a good space. Yeah, because we know they have done some interesting research. And of course, this is all like aggregated. So it could be different when you break it down. But that people, autistic folks who date other autistic folks generally rate their relationship satisfaction is higher because they're sort of on the same page about some sort of communication styles and things like that. So yeah, that's always something I mentioned to my clients, like, you know, keep your, your options open um, unless there's something that you're really focused on. You want to date someone with or without autism for whatever reason. There's a lot of possibilities. And I think the social skill part is also important, as you mentioned. And, and I oftentimes talk about it with my clients who are not in spectrum, that when they have this repeated negative experiences on dates and asking people out, do you role play in the session? So tell me, imagine I'm the person, what are you asking? What are you doing? And I think you can get a lot about kind of seeing, getting help from professional, from the group or a therapist, seeing that, okay, what am I doing here that's not working? And someone mm-hmm. can helping you to kind of like sort through it. Again, it's my experience is that most people that they want to have fulfilling sexual life, there is a way for them to figure it out. It's just need to find the right resources. Yeah. And the right partner, right? So someone that they feel comfortable with, and this is also true for everyone. John Elder Robeson, who's a famous autistic self-advocate, tells this really sort of interesting story where like if you, you know, like the, I guess bring getting flowers once a week exam or once a month example, right? Communicating about that. But just being able to say what you want and when you want it, but then also respecting that your own needs and wants and desires are also important. So um, I think oftentimes there's a push like, you know, we have this lens of neurodiversity and that we need to be more accepting of that. And that is also true on a one-to-one basis with a, with a partner as well. Well, I noticed that we're toward the end of our time and I know you have tons of publication in this area. I don't know if you have your own practice. So if our listeners want to kind of get a hold of you, your content that you published and perhaps your practice, what are some of the ways they can get in contact with you? Yeah, so email would probably be best. I work at Tufts University now, so um, and I can send that to you, but it's my first name dot last name at tufts.edu. And then we're actually working to start, or will be starting in the spring, a sex education, almost like supervision type program. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to do it just for special educators in the spring and then open it up to clinicians in the fall, where it'll be a, a telehealth sort of model. Um, we're using Project Echo. It's a, it's a very cool long distance sort of delivery model to try and disperse this information a little bit more quickly. But yeah, but I love talking about this stuff. I love like doing trainings or sending materials or, and the more we can talk about it, I think the better it will be for everyone. So definitely feel free to reach out. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I've been researching like providers, psychologists, researchers, and they do that work. So I'm glad that we had the pleasure of having you on this show. And thank you for sharing all of those useful information with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Crehan. It was very affirming to hear that there are, first of all, research that are developing in this area, and also that individuals who are on the spectrum are able to have healthy sexual experiences. It's just a matter of connecting them to the right resources. In the show notes, you will find a link to the video in which Dr. Crehan talking about educating kids about sex and sexuality. As as you guys know, I always talk about how important it is to have this conversation with our kids. And I know as a parent, you guys want the best 
for your kids. It's just a matter of at times not knowing what to say, how to say it. So I hope you find the video helpful as far as giving you the language and tools necessary. As always, I'm very grateful that you're listening to this show. If you are enjoying this show, please make sure you're subscribing and leaving us a review on iTunes and Stitchers. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.